Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. We have Jeremy Raper back on. Jeremy, how you been? Happy New hey, Year. Eric. How are you? Happy New Year. Nice to be back. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you back. So, Thank you. so it's Thank always you. interesting to talk to you. So I'm excited to see where we where we get into in the conversation tonight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a few months. I mean, I was just uh, looking through my past um, appearances, and I, I realized the first, maybe not the first appearance, actually, the second appearance was basically right in the peak of the Corona crisis mm-hmm. in mid March. And yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think what I said at that time was basically look, a lot of these companies, they're going to go through a really rough time and a lot of them aren't going to make it. But basically all these companies are priced for destruction. So if they don't disappear, then they're multi-baggers, right? And we and look, we went through a fair few of them at the time, so I don't need to do the full recap. But, yeah. you know, uh, almost a year later, not quite a year later, 10 months later, that that's kind of what happened, right? Like the market threw a huge number of babies out with the bathwater, Frankly, a lot of the stuff that I thought would disappear and file managed to get by thanks to the Fed. And, th- you know, those turned into, you know, 10 baggers. But even the the more respectable things like, you know, the air caps, some of the airline related, not airline, but uh, aircraft financing, let's say, um, and some of the uh, aerospace supply chain names, these have all done very, very well. Um, and so, you know, now we're kind of entering a new phase where the quote unquote easy money has been made. Um, basically everyone I follow on Twitter has been putting up these crazy returns for 2020, which is always pretty scary. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, I think it's going to be a much more difficult environment this year, frankly, than last year, even though the fed's still there and, and accommodative. And now it looks like the Democrats are going to have both houses of, of, of parliament in the U S so the environment will remain accommodative, but the returns will be harder to find, um, which is fine. Um, you're never going to, I mean, never, never say never, but 2020 from an investor's standpoint is kind of a once in a lifetime type of year. It was a wacky opportunity. It was, a, I mean, look, it was a wacky opportunity. Um, it was the, the most difficult thing I've been talking to a few people about getting through 2020. And like, if you remember in late February, early March, the, the problem is most crises, they unfold at a certain pace. So like, if you think about the financial crisis, you know, the market peaked, well, the, the mortgage market blew up in the summer of 2007. And I remember it distinctly because I was an intern on a, on a credit desk in Tokyo. And all of a sudden, the boss, the, boss uh, the, the head of the desk ran on the trading floor at 9 a.m. one morning saying, why didn't you sell all this paper? I told you to sell all this paper yesterday. And that was code for they were taking a huge loss on some mortgage bonds. Um, anyway, so, so that was that was memorable. But the point is that blew up in 2007. The market didn't blow up until, you know, mid 2008, late 2008. Right. So it had a, a year of translating those uh, mortgage losses throughout the financial system. And even when the market blew up in October 2008, you know, it was kind of a well, it wasn't quite a slow motion blow up because there were days like we had in March, but it was a much slower motion blow up than March. Yeah. So in March, you had this incredible intensity um of pain and so like take aircap stock that i own one of my largest conviction longs at the time right the, the problem was if you're making an investment decision it's very rare that you're forced to a decision to enter or exit a position within a matter of days right 
for, for, yeah. for a professional investor. Most of the time you'll, look, a stock might go up or down five, 10%, might even go down, up or down 10, 15%, but it's not like it's moving 60, 70% of its value in days. Right? Uh, do, so, do you remember us joking around? I don't even know if it was recorded or offline, but I, I think I said to you, I was like, you know, I buy AirCap, I wake up the next day, it's down another 30%. <laughs> Yeah, I think I don't. Yeah, and you weren't joking. Like so, I know it's like where'd the money just go? I pull, up, I pull up a chart at the end of January. Aircap was like making new highs, sixty-five bucks. By mid-February, it was down to the mid-fifties or whatever. So it was down a little bit. I don't know. Corona was spreading throughout China, but within the first, the last week of February to the middle of March. So within like eighteen a, or something, right? Bottomed at ten. Within did, within did basically bottom at ten really. Bottomed at like ten or eleven. So oh, wow. so okay. in, there there are tons of stocks like this. By the way, there are tons of stocks like this. But essentially, you had. You know, anything travel related lost 75% of its value in basically two weeks of trading. So 10, 11 trading days. So maybe three time weeks, but basically two trading weeks. And so the difficulty there is you can say you're a long-term investor. You can say, you know, understand the story, but it's really hard. Like, you know, there were a couple of guys on Twitter saying pound the table buy. Not many, not many. I think Cuppy was one of them. One of my buddies in Singapore was was pretty aggressively getting long. You know, I was like dipping my toes in. I was like trying to add here and there where, you know, where I thought it was just silly prices. But it's not like I just, I didn't mortgage my house, sell my kids to get long in the stock market in March. So it's very difficult when prices move that quickly, right? So so if I kind of cast back on what I did, I wasn't I wasn't super happy with how I traded in March, but the rest of the year, I feel like I did a lot better, right? So once things had stabilized even at much higher prices right so once you knew the fed was kind of there and that uh liquidity was just going to be endless and basically pumped into the system not not as it was needed but many many times over what was ultimately needed right they fully backstopped the credit market you know uh once that was became apparent then you, you kind of had a green light or you should have been aware you had a green light to to really kind of get get a get a bit longer um, so, so that was, anyway, that was 2020. That, that's all hindsight. I mean, I think the playbook for this year is quite a bit different, frankly. So, I mean, just to kind of outline how I'm thinking about it a little bit, right? So most of, uh, most of what has worked very, very well in the last, like, call it 10 years, but particularly the last four or five years has been mm-hmm. massive long growth, short value, long compounders, long bond substitutes, um, so any, anything with kind of like a, a perceived terminal growth rate above the long-term bond yield, which is steadily compressed, yeah. has been trading at a huge premium. So everything from, you know, tech compounder stocks to SaaS stocks, you know, whether the perceived back-end payoff in 10, 15 years is much, much higher than the, than the, uh, than the, than the payoff today. Um, all these stocks have been massively rewarded by, by you know, uh, um, by lower interest rates, by the compression in, of the cost of money. None of this is rocket science. The problem is inflation is everywhere, increasingly everywhere. Um, and so if you, if you take that, so, so let, let's, let's frame it another way. Like a lot of people think they're, you know, let's say they go out and they buy salesforce.com or Adobe or I don't know, DocuSign or not Zoom because, you know, these kind of things are explicit COVID beneficiaries. I'm just talking your run-of-the-mill, pretty high-quality software company trading at an insane valuation. There's hundreds of these things. They think they're making a stock-specific bet. So they think they're making idiosyncratic bet, but they're not. They're actually making an interest rates bet. That's all they're doing. They're making a style bet. So that's all well and good when it's working and when momentum, that's the momentum factor. But if momentum changes and then 
you know, inflation related stocks, commodities, whatever, then that gets the momentum factor and people are actively looking for more, you know, inflation hedges, inflated, inflation related plays, or God forbid, they start looking more at value stocks and it quickly turns into a, a steamroller. And, you know, so it, it's kind of, kind of what happened a little bit in 2000, obviously in 2000, there was a, there was a massive tech blow off and a crash. Um, but I think that year the Dow Jones is actually up. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling for a tech crash or anything like that. I'm saying if you're long these kinds of massive secular winners that have done great for you, not just last year, but the last, you know, four or five years, it seems like a terrible risk reward. And I, and I say that because inflation is, is apparent everywhere. Look at lumber prices, look at containership rates, look at, you know, agriculture prices. Basically any agriculture crop you look at is at a multi-year high. Look at, um, look at iron ore prices. Iron ore prices are at all-time highs. Look at coal prices. They're ripping off the, off the bottom. They're quickly rallying back. Um, copper is in deficit. Aluminium's at multi-year highs. Copper's at multi-year highs. Oil-related like derivatives like plastics, ethylene, PVC. You know, oil is still at 50 bucks, but you know, some of these oil derivatives are starting to rally kind of aggressively. So like, you know, when the price of everything is going up, um, it does seem more likely that inflation will take hold. And now you have a, a democratic administration that, frankly, they wanted to hand out free money to everyone before. And Republicans kind of got on board last year post COVID, but there's no, uh, there's no reason for them to hold back now, right? Why wouldn't right. there just be massive fiscal stimulus in addition to the monetary stimulus? So like, you know, if the value of the US dollar is going down, then inflation in some form or other is going to be cool. the 10 year yield has started to move. Right. So look, I, I kind of think it's very dangerous to be on what worked last year. Um, that's not to say the businesses can't keep performing. So like I, I own a fair few things that did very well through the pandemic because they were like, you know, financial services related businesses that do big, you know, a lot of trading or whatever. Right. So stock trading has been high. I think it stayed high. Um, yeah. Is my, is my dog very loud on the mic? Is it picking up? I, mean, I, I can hear, I can hear him. <laughs> yeah, he, he just discovered his reflection today. So, okay. Hold on one second. I guess he likes inflation stories. I guess so, buddy. <laughs> hold on one sec. Okay. No worries. All good. All right. We'll, we'll see. So, so, so basically what I'm trying to say is, you know, I, it's not like I've thrown out all my, you know, favorites or whatever from last year, but I, where I am sticking around in names that were COVID beneficiaries, they have to show two things. One is they have to be maybe positive beneficiaries of inflation, right? So, so I'm long a company called Stonex, S-N-E-X, which I've talked about elsewhere in the public domain. They're a beneficiary of higher volatility, higher capital markets volatility, higher uh, soft commodity price volatility. They, they basically do a bunch. They're a financial intermediary for a bunch of different kind of off the run uh, markets. So mm -hmm. ags, soft commodities, hard commodities, bullion hedging. Um, they have a small payments business. They do OTC clearing. They do ADR trading. Um, but they have a very large float as well, right? Because they custodian for a number of accounts. So their float is like $5 billion. So obviously if interest rates go from 1% to 2%, that drops straight to the bottom line. So yes, they were a big beneficiary from the jump in vol last year. I think that probably continues. Look at what happened on Capitol Hill today. Uh, but even if that doesn't continue or not to the same extent, if rates go from one to 2%, they're minting it. 
so so these yeah. these kinds of trades where um, you know they're positive beneficiaries of a more inflationary environment or a normalization in the yield curve. Um, and then obviously I still have some stocks that that did quite well last year and were you know more idiosyncratic stories like related to online gambling transition or whatever. But you know they they're on let's say a shorter leash some of them than than some of the other stuff that I'm trying to put in the book, which is much more explicitly commodity related. So like a lot of the stuff I'm looking at now is like you know somewhat idiosyncratic junior Canadian copper miner or whatever trading at three times cash flow, even if copper goes down 40% kind of thing. Um, and, you know, copper's at multi-year high. So if copper stays here, it's at like one and a half times free cash flow or whatever, right? So things like that, like a little bit junky, a little bit off the run, but huge beneficiaries of a more inflationary commodity price environment. Um, so I'm looking at a few things like that, but and then and then the other stuff is a bunch of special sit stuff, which is a bit more independent of the broader macro environment. So like ARB, ARB related trades. So like I'm not sure if you got involved last year, but there was a lot of action in the SPAC warrant ARBs. Mm-hmm. You, know what, you know what these are? Mm-hmm. Why don't you explain to the listeners what they are? Then? Well, well, like so so you know everyone knows what a SPAC is at this point, but essentially the way SPACs get financed is they say, look, buy our SPAC, give us a bunch of money, we'll find a deal in a year, six months to a year, or maybe even two years, give us a bunch of money in return. You have the right to put back the money to us before the deal gets, you know, when, when you vote on the deal, you don't like it. You can get, you know, put back the shares and we'll give you whatever you gave us plus the accrued interest essentially, which is essentially a treasury bond type yield. Right. Yeah. Um, now to sweeten the deal somewhat, we'll also give you a warrant, which is a, just a five-year option on the underlying stock, um, if it goes up, generally it's 15% in the money. You you know, the, the warrant is struck 15% above 10 bucks, so 11.50. So it's like a little kicker if the stock actually performs. Now, because the market is insane and everything's going up, a lot of these SPACs, the, the stock prices have taken off. And so the warrants are extremely deep in the money, right? So if the stock was priced at 10 bucks and then it's a hot deal and the stock's trading at $25, it's extremely likely the warrant's going to be in the money. So if you think about the way option pricing works, right? The the so, so okay, so not to get too technical, but but basically these you warrants get, you are can five, get very technical. It's okay. They're, they're, they're five year op, they're five year options, right? For most of them. And the strike price is eleven fifty, and you can generally convert or the company can force conversion above eighteen bucks. So if the stock is deep in the money, the company can force conversion. Now there's there's a few wrinkles which I'll cover. But essentially, after $18, if that in that scenario where the company forces conversion, the economic payoff of owning that warrant is almost identical to owning the stock, right? So if the stock, let's put it this way, if the stock is $30, right, uh, and you own an $11.50 warrant, if the stock goes from $30 to $20, obviously, if you, if you own the stock, you would lose $10 a share. Similarly, if the, if the stock went from $30, excuse me, if you own the warrant and the stock went from $30 to $20, most likely you would you would lose ten dollars a share. It's not not entirely true because there's a small pre there's a small time value sure, component yeah. there. But almost all the value of the option of the warrant is then intrinsic value, right? The difference yeah. between the stock price and the strike price. So if the stock's at thirty dollars, most all states of the world, you would expect the warrant to trade close to thirty minus eleven point five. That's intrinsic value, right? Uh-huh. Which is what you know, often is eighteen uh, yeah eighteen yeah eighteen fifty. Math, math is not my major. Um, so, so you have all these situations. Makes, makes where, two of us, by the way. <laughs> where um, you have all these situations where deep in the money SPAC warrants are trading way below intrinsic value, way below intrinsic value. It's not something you see every day. 
Um, so, so basically, I mean, you could pull up some of these things, but there were a few egregious examples in um, the very recent past. None, by the way, I have no positions in any of these right now, but I was involved in a few of these trades last year. So one good example last year was the Hylion, H-Y-L-N, warrant, SPAC versus warrant. That thing blew out and then ultimately collapsed very close to zero. Maybe, maybe it's still around. I'm not sure, but it, it blew out then collapsed. Nikola was a big example. Nikola, that, that warrant spread blew out to 20 bucks. And when I say spread, I mean the spread versus intrinsic value. So yeah. stock was trading at a huge premium. Sorry, the warrant was trading at a huge discount to intrinsic value, $20 discount, which is fairly crazy if you think about it, right? If the stock's at 40 bucks and the intrinsic value of the warrant is therefore 29.50 and the warrant's trading at like 10 bucks, yeah, I mean, I mean these things are unheard of. So, are you so buying? Like, were you buying the warrants and then shorting the? Uh... Yeah, yeah. So, so the way you would exercise it. So this is where it gets complicated. But essentially, there's two things. One, you need to have borrow in the stock. Okay. So if there's no borrow in the stock, then there's no true ARB because you can't hedge the stock. You could go into the options market and try and hedge that way by selling calls, like selling a similar strike call or whatever. But again, without borrow, the options markets also depend on borrow because the way an options dealer will hedge their ability to sell you an option or buy an option is by then shorting or buying the underlying stock. So it still comes down to the same thing. So because a lot of these SPACs are relatively tight floats and a lot of the shares are locked up, the borrow markets can be very volatile. That said, a lot of these things did have borrow. And even if the borrow is 15, 20% cost, 15, 20% a year doesn't really matter if the spread's 20 bucks, right? Let's be honest. If you're making, if, you, if you're going to hold this thing for three to six months and, this, and you're paying 20% for your borrow, that means you're paying 10%. Well, 10% of 20 bucks is $2, right? And if the spread's $20, you'll pay that all day and twice on Sundays. Yeah. So if the borrow is there, it doesn't really matter if it's expensive. The risk is not the cost of the borrow, really. The risk is losing the borrow, right? If you just, too many people put on this trade, you can't close the ARB, you get squeezed out, and that's how these spreads started to go vertical. So basically what happened was all these idiots buying these stocks are Robin Hood punters who don't know what a warrant is and or can't trade a warrant. Or what do you call them, Robin Hood punters? Punters, yeah. Punters like gambler, like okay. uh, speculators. The Speculators is too nice a word for these people, right? They, they woke up yesterday, decided they wanted to invest in, invest in the stock market. Right. Frankly, they, I mean, look, God bless them, whatever, but you know, it's, they're trading. I was system. just on a podcast that came out today and I was just talking about this. Well, so. they're, they're, look, they're trading, they're trading sophisticated financial instruments and they're doing it on their smartphone for no cost. Um, it, it's a recipe for disaster in the longer term and they're making, they're getting rich now. So God especially, I was gonna say, especially if they do well now. Dude, there's a, there's a great Twitter follow. I highly recommend everyone follow this Twitter account. It's at TikTok investors. Okay. And they basically, they basically, it's like the bag holder quotes, but for tick, but for TikTok, like there's all these people on TikTok who say things like, Hey, if you had bought square shares a year ago, you'd be up 10 X, put your stimulus money in Tesla calls. You can make 20 times, you know, like these kind of crazy. And it's, it's some cute blonde in a, you know, in a MAGA hat or whatever. Right. right. So, so that's a great, it's a great, it's a hilarious account. That's awesome. Everyone follows it. But look, the, the serious point is they're speculating in sophisticated, complex, and highly risky financial instruments, and they really have no idea what they're doing. But the upshot is the stock price tends to diverge wildly from the warrant price. Yeah. So basically, if you can hold this ARB, if you can hold it to, to conclusion, you will make money. Um, 
Now there is a wrinkle other than the borrow wrinkle, that's wrinkle number one. The other wrinkle is these warrants are not a typical option, right? So your typical option is either European style, which means it exercises at the maturity of the option, right? So if it's a one-year option, you can exercise it at day 365 and not earlier. Or the typical ones that get traded in the US are American style, so you can exercise them anytime. So obviously as American style options, if it was $10 in the money, you just exercise it immediately, collapse warrant and take your money. But these warrants are not exercisable until the later of, typically, this is a typical situation that the terms do change. Uh, they're not exercisable until the later of one year after the IPO of the SPAC or 30, I think it's 30 days after the closure of the business combination. So this is where it gets confusing. You have a bunch of SPACs, right? All of these SPACs are new SPACs. They've all launched in the last 12 months, most of them in the last six months. Even if they find a deal and that's a hot deal, and even if that deal closes in three months, right? So let's say you put on this ARB, it's a great ARB, super juicy. You wait three months, the deal closes, boom, you're like, okay, sweet, I can, I can collapse it, I can, I can uh, exercise. No, that's not the case. The warrants stay outstanding for at least a year. And that's how some people got burnt in some of these trades because they assumed after the deal closed, well, that's it. The SEC will automatically, you know, register the shares under the warrants and then I could just convert easy peasy. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, you get into these trades, you might have to be able to hold them for a year. So that's the issue. When you're looking at these warrant ARBs, they can be very juicy, but you want to look, look at ones where they're what's called seasoned SPAC IPOs. Seasoned meaning the shares have already been outstanding for a year or almost a year, meaning the only thing that needs to happen for those shares to become, for the warrants to become exercisable is they need to just close the deal. So when, when you're an ARB, you're really trying to handicap what can go wrong. Most of the time things go wrong when you stay in positions for a long time, right? The longer you're in the trade, the more likely it is that more people put on the trade, that borrow gets tight, that the company comes out with some crazy announcement, gets all the bulls excited, whatever. So basically what I did last year I tried to focus on ones where it was a very tight timeline to closure. So yeah, the spread might not have been 20 bucks. Maybe the spread was only a few dollars, $4, but yeah. I knew that I only have to wait 30 you days. You were taking a lot of the risk off the table. Yeah, I was accepting a lower return with lower risk. Yeah. Uh, so, so basically on a risk adjusted basis, I thought it was a much better bet. And so that's why I've stayed away from some of these crazy ones at the end of last year, like QS, look up QS or SBE, anything EV related. These warrant spreads just exploded. I had a lot of friends in them who unfortunately have lost money um, and they may end up being fine. They may end up making money if they stay in the trades, but it's a tough way to make money. Yeah. So basically I just have a little calendar where I look at, okay, what's the timeline to one, the deal being seasoned. In other words, the 12 month period and then two, the deal closing. And so for some of those, the warrant spreads will compress to two bucks or whatever, but even so $2 on a, on a, you know, $11 warrant, whatever is like 20, 25% return. But again, you don't have to post all the collateral. So the return on capital can be extremely high. So, yeah. so that's kind of an interesting special situations area that will remain interesting as long as Robin Hood punters remain crazy okay. um, and as long as they remain unsophisticated. Both both propositions of which I'm extremely... High probability. Worried. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are there any... Um particular names that you're willing to talk about that you think are interesting? There's lots of names that I think are interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I have the highest conviction idea I've probably had in uh, whew, a long time, a long time. Um, 
definitely at least the last six months, probably all of 2020. Unfortunately, I had just wrote it up for my subscribers. So I'm not really able to to unpack it with you at this stage. But if they but, want to see it, they can subscribe to your newsletter. Yeah, this, this isn't this is not really intended to be a pitch, I, but I get it. Obviously, you know, I think look, I think you offer a lot of value, so <laughs> it's worth sharing your newsletter and people that thanks. obviously people thanks. register for it. So thanks, man. Thanks, man. Yeah. So if they wanna if they really want to look into that, that's uh rapercapital.com. Um, they can check that out. But look, other than that, I mean, look, there, there's definitely a lot to do. So uh, yeah, what, 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 what can we talk about that's super interesting? Um, if you're an investor, what areas do you think you'd, you'd start looking at in terms of research process? You mean just for a new investor or? Oh, no, someone who's a seasoned investor and they're like, hmm, what, are, what are maybe some interesting things, you know, parts of the market to start researching? Where, where would you be well, spending your time? That's easy. That's easy. Oil and gas. Okay. Energy. So, so look, okay. So Tell, say, say more about that. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, look, it's, it's you, you want to fish where you want to fish where other people aren't fishing, right? Yeah. I mean, in life, as in, as in investing, you, you want to try and do something other people aren't doing. And so what's been the most out of favor sector globally for most of the last, I don't know, almost the last decade, 10 years now. Yeah. Years? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's close, Ener- it's close to 10 energy. Years. Uh, look, the more people get up on their bandwagon and jump up and down about renewable energy, the more I laugh, like <laughs> it's, this is not, not trying to get political or anything, but, you, there's just basic facts in science and chemistry that people don't understand. A human society has never gone from a from a more energy dense for from a more yeah energy dense uh, fuel to a less energy dense fuel over time. It just doesn't make sense. It's it's the, it's the same reason why Germany's uh, coal consumption has gone up dramatically ever since they mandated renewables. Like and they made renewables. Uh, they had a mandate to you know they have the highest share of renewable energy in the globe. I think it's like above twenty percent of their mm-hmm. total generation is is from renewable sources. And yet at the same time, their coal consumption has gone through the roof because the vast majority of renewable is not baseload energy, right? You can't yeah. you can't run a grid off renewable energy. So no matter how much solar or wind you build, you still have to build the equivalent peaking. Peaking demand capable, you know, coal-fired power plant or NAS, nat gas-fired power plant, whatever it is. Yeah, people, so, don't, people don't seem to get that. Yeah, and like, you know, there is a way around it, by the way. If people would actually open their eyes to nuclear, then you could do away with coal. You could probably, yeah, you could do away with nat gas as well if you really wanted to. But for whatever reason, new, nuclear is seen as dirty, even though it's the, the cleanest of all fuels, literally zero emissions. Um and the, you know, you can fit the amount of waste from one nuclear power plant into the size of a football field forever. You just need like a hundred meters by 40 meters. Um, but no one wants that in their backyard. And because of that, no one's building new nuclear power plants, at least in the West, they're still building them in as fast as they can in China. Um, and they're building them in the Middle East, funnily enough. Um, but yeah, it's nuclear's persona non grata in the West, even though it is by far the most nuclear uh, energy dense fuel we know of. Um, and you know, ever since, ever since Neanderthal man, you know, uh, climbed down from the tree and started his finger paintings in caves or whatever, we've been moving from burning dung to burning wood, to burning coal, to burning oil, uh, and to, to splitting the atom. But now apparently where we want to go backwards, uh, I don't quite get it anyway, that, that, that's for the buy, yeah. but the, the investing upshot is the importance not the importance the necessity of fossil fuels to human progress and human society is not going down it's going up it's going up um 
if you get lost in the narrative that it's going down, um, you'll miss, I think, generational opportunities. So because there's been this huge pressure from governments, from ESG investors, from all kinds of investors to divest, to divest and or to minimize kind, you know, lots of fossil fuel investment, it's creating a shortage. You see this in lots of different industries. Um, there's a massive shortage of coal, right? There's a global shortage of coal mines. Um, and so if the cost of capital of building a new coal mine is 50% IRR or whatever, no one's going to build them. And what does that mean? That means the existing coal, you know, uh, coal plants in the world have to earn extremely high returns because that's the r return demanded by an investor willing to own them. Right. Yeah. Um, and so look, I'm not massively long coal. I'm not super bullish on coal necessarily, but it's an example of the kinds of industries that I think are quite interesting. And there, there's definitely opportunities within coal, but I think oil, oil and gas, ENP. Are you, are you looking at the equity or the, or the, the debt? In, in coal, I'm actually long some debt of, mm -hmm. of a couple of companies. So I'm long some Peabody bonds, Peabody BTUs, the ticker. I wish I was along the stock. The stock's gone up like 4X in the last two months, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I'm, I'm long some bonds. I'm long some bonds because it's almost like the equity security. The equity is very, very small. There's lots of different bonds outstanding. So I won't go into too detail, but I got into these bonds in the mid 30s. Um, they've gone up a lot since then. Look, these bonds are probably par bonds, right? So it's almost like an equity type explosion, right? If you buy a bond at 30 cents and you think you can go to par, it's almost like an equity type return, right? So right, yeah. Um, it's look, Peabody is a very interesting situation, a bit of a complex situation. Um, Elliot is involved in the equity, which normally that isn't great for creditors when when you have a very strong owner in the equity, but it's not it's not in restructuring, right? It's still a solvent entity. They yeah. recently pushed out a huge amount of debt, meaning they have time. So if coal, if coal rallies 20, 30% and stays there, the bonds are power bonds and the stock's a $15 stock. Um, so Peabody is very interesting. There's a lot of leverage. Um, but no, I'm look, look, there's, there's a few busted type uh, Canadian small cap copper type names I'm looking at, um, which I'm not, not really fully ready to discuss in detail because I haven't done all the work yet. Um, but yeah, oil, I mean, oil and gas is very interesting. Um, that's probably an area I'd spend a lot of time. Um, and then, then other, in terms of other general advice, I, I would probably say try to look outside the United States. Frankly, I think the US is very difficult market to invest in at the moment. I mean, I ha of course I have some investments there, but it's very expensive. What, what countries do you think are most interesting right now? Um, We're just gonna call this episode the 2021 playbook. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Any anything anything emerging markets emerging markets in general relative to the US. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I have a few Mexican investments. We can we can talk about my largest investment, my second largest investment, if you want. We sure. Can, sure. Let's do it. Um, maybe, maybe there's there's a lot of cheap Mexican stocks. So it's not really a comment on Mexico. It's more about the business. So this company is called uh, Betterware de Mexico. It's a multi-level marketer. It's what's, basically what's the, what's the ticker? BWMX. So it's listed. It's listed in the U.S. It's a very interesting story. It was actually the first U.S.-listed Mexican company, not ADR, native listing okay. to the U.S. And it came public via SPAC, which Mexican MLM comes public via SPAC is not normally what you send as your pitch deck to <laughs> a responsible investor. Right. But 
as they say, there's always an exception that proves the rule. There's quite possibly the best business I've seen uh, in a long time, which in itself is a little bit scary, right? Because if the business is too good, then how sustainable is it? Which right. is a lot of the reason why the stock is cheap because it's, it's earning some crazy triple digit return on invested capital. So take it back a step. This is the Mexican Tupperware, okay? Um, uh, much better than Tupperware, but essentially what they do is they they sell homeware, kitchenware, household cleaning products, containers via catalog. Very okay. recently they moved online, but essentially they send out all these catalogs to their just two levels. They're distributors, they have 50,000 distributors, and they have 1.2 million associates. Those associates buy from the distributors, the distributors buy from the company. So the relationship between the company is mostly with, well, entirely with their distributors. So basically, you, you have, it's kind of like Herbalife, right? You probably know Herbalife, mm-hmm. where you have a downline. The company sells to one guy. The com- the, that one guy sells to another guy. That other guy either uses the product or sells to their friends. Right. So these these things are quite typically the MLM model, whether it's whether you think it's a pyramid scheme or not. Um, and look, it's quite clear this is not a pyramid scheme because the interest in the product, the consumption of the product is extremely high. You can measure this in terms of engagement online. Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the big issue with a lot of these companies is just that there's there's often a, a sleaziness or an un, yeah. unethical component to it. Yes, yes. There's a taking advantage of your network to sell them product type thing. Right. So, so I think yeah. what's what's interesting is so so I guess there's there's two things. One, is it sustainable? And then two, you know, is it is it actually that sleazy? And so. Mexico is interesting because it's a very different country. It's right next to the U.S., but it's a very different country to the U.S. So first of all, it's extremely uh, geographically and demographically dispersed. So instead of being clustered in one or two big cities or a number of major cities, which you might find in more developed countries, you have lots and lots of little communities spread over a very wide area. So actually, relationship-based selling is very common in Mexico. This isn't like the only MLM. There's like 15 different MLMs doing all, you know, of varying degrees of success, but very common. So relationship-based selling, selling from one community member, one family member to another is is very common in Mexico. And it's not really looked down upon. So I think it is a bit different. That's a cultural difference and a geographic difference that applies in other Latin American countries as well, which means it's probably translatable. The model's translatable. Um, The second thing that's interesting about this company is it's been around for 25 years. So it's hit a massive growth inflection recently. Obviously, COVID was a big help there, but it's not as if this is a fly-by-night operation. It's only been around for a couple of years, right? So the guys who founded it, it's a family business. They still own the bulk of the company. They haven't sold down anything, even though the stock has gone up 3x since the uh, SPAC transaction. Um they pay out all their earnings as dividends, right? So, you know, if you're gonna say, well, I'm a little bit unsure how sustainable the cash flow is. They have no debt. They're paying it all out as dividends. So it's on like a 9% dividend yield on my numbers this year. It's pretty pretty hefty and insiders are not selling down shares, right? So, you know, if you are looking at some of the apparent red flags or yellow flags in a business like this, first things you, you want to see in addition are, are insiders dumping shares and or is the cash flow there. And on both those checks, they come through in spades. The other thing that's really interesting is the, um, the company... Firstly, there's the there's the business itself, and secondly, there's kind of the the narrative slash technicals around it, right? So, other than the business, the interesting thing is there's no analyst coverage, other than like one analyst, they you know not a normal sell sider, but basically one of these paid research firms. Um, 
they haven't marketed the company at all. For the first six, nine months, they didn't market it because they wanted to retire the SPAC warrants at a very low price, which they did. Stock's done well since then, but it still trades on like, you know, nine times, 10 times earnings. And I think nine times are my numbers, nine times earnings for 2021, despite the fact earnings grew 150% last year, they're going to grow another 70% this year. Wild. Yeah. And as I said, it's paying out 80% of its earnings as divs. So that's why it's like a near 10% div yield. So you have to look pretty far and wide to find a stock growing at Kagering at let's say let's say seventy percent um, yeah. at least for the next couple of years, um, trading at nine times earnings, even if it is Mexico. And so, so the logical explanation is one: the market thinks the returns are unsustainable. TBD, obviously, although all signs of engagement and all signs of ongoing business are extremely positive. Don't take my word for it. Look at things like YouTube views of their catalogs. Right, they going up, they put up a new catalog within, you know, a couple of days, it has a hundred thousand views yeah. or, you know, things like Google trends for betterware to Mexico or betterware catalog or things like that. The level's still extremely high and much higher than they were a year ago. Uh, and Twitter engagement is extremely high. So the business seems to be doing very, very well, although it's obviously an open question how long that can, that can go because to be frank, they've, they've grown massively. Like a year ago, they only had three, 400,000, uh, associates now they have one point well as of last quarter they had 1.2 they're going to end the year at 1.3 1.4 right there's not you know so that's that's a decent percentage of the adult population in mexico right so obviously there's some churn in that number as well so if you're saying you know that's already a low single digit percentage of the adult population of mexico it's natural to think they're bumping up against potential uh, uh saturation in terms of the associate pool the company thinks differently. The company says they're only 25% penetrated in their target markets. And those target markets tend to be what they call tier C or tier D. In other words, the lower income, um, the lower yep. income earners. Because look, the average price of the product at full price is $5. And then, Bob, you know, obviously you get all these discounts through the program, right? So the distributor is not paying $5 for his product. They're paying like $2.50. Um, and then the associate is paying $3, $3.50, whatever. And so if the associate consumes most of the product, which I think is actually what happens, you know, the average price is more like $3.50. So, you know, they're going to increase their assortment so that they move slightly up market, which will increase their, their TAM in a sense. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one interesting thing. But the more interesting thing is they're actually trying to develop into more of a platform. So they have this this huge network of associates who distribute the product. And that's key because in Mexico, the trick is the last mile delivery. Getting the product to the warehouse is not tricky, but getting the product from that warehouse into the tiny community is very tricky. So the fact that they have this army who not only they don't have to pay, but actually pays them effectively to do it in terms of purchases, um, that's, that's the real gold of the business. That's the crown jewel. That's interesting. And so what they're trying to do is one, move it from a pure catalog business to online, right? So instead of having your paper catalog that you read and then you call your buddy and say, hey, I love that, I love that box. I love that mop. Can you, you know, I'll meet you in the mall. I'll meet you in the plaza tomorrow at noon. Can you bring me two, three mops and, you know, 10 containers? Instead mm -hmm. of doing that, they just have an app. So then they order directly on the app. That app obviously geolocates who's the closest associate or the nearest one with product. So you get efficiency on inventory, whatever. Yep. And then you can just arrange a meet or pick up directly through the app. So that's point one. But I mean, the more valuable part of it is if that becomes a platform for other consumer products, 
to, you know, not Betterwear branded, but other brands yeah. to get access to those customers. So that, I mean, then all of a sudden it becomes viewed as a platform type business, right? So then you could have this double inflection, not just in the earnings of the business, but then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this could actually be a, an e-market, a marketplace of sorts, mm -hmm. an emerging market marketplace. We'll look at Mercado Libre, Meli. Meli trades at some crazy, and look, it's a different story, completely different model. So I'm not trying to compare the two, but even that general perception change could be worth multiples the stock could could easily multi-bag on that yeah but if it happens and then so, so then the third leg of the stool is international expansion so they, they ran a pilot pro program in guatemala which is a much smaller country um but what was most interesting there was uh even though it's very very small in scale they were making 50 percent ebitda margins that's wild on a very small scale yeah so they were basically charging a much higher price is okay. what i think is happening right so Generally, it's still really impressive. I mean, look, it's a it's a sixty percent gross margin business that translates at the moment into thirty percent EBITDA margins. Like, I think the margins are more like thirty five percent EBITDA margins, but it's scaling rapidly. They were mid twenties. Uh, they were mid twenties like for most of last year, and it's like a thirty percent EBITDA margin business now, close enough. Um, but it's very consistent. Like whether you know, there's some FX sensitivity, but basically your gross margin is in the 50, low fifties to sixty percent range. Um, and the peso has been strengthening, right? So that's positive for them because they they order their products overwhelmingly in US dollars. Most of it's made in China mm -hmm. um, and they sell it in pesos. So if the peso goes up, they do better. Um, so look, I, I think you have a number of tailwinds. One, business is still firing on all cylinders. Two, the stock is extremely cheap. Three, I don't think anyone owns it because I don't think many people know about it. And I'm pretty confident in that because the daily volume is abysmal. Daily volume is like 25,000, 30,000 shares a day. So what's that? 30,000 times $30. What's that? Three. Yeah. So it's under a million dollars a day, 500,000 to a million dollars a day of volume for a billion dollar market cap. So that's very low, but I think yeah. it will increase over time. And look, they're going to pick up coverage. Analysts will pick up coverage, but essentially it's like Tupperware. So all the guys who cover Tupperware will start covering the stock. It's a much better version of Tupperware. There's no debt on it. Tupperware's almost died last year. Uh, and has had a crazy kind of recovery from from the ashes, but it's still almost died. It's still quite levered. And Tupperware trades at like mid-teens EPS and has nothing like the growth of this guy and doesn't pay out divs. So it's like, yeah, there's a liquidity issue. There's a liquidity issue here, but then they're also pursuing a listing in Mexico as well, which who knows if that happens in the next three months or the next nine months. But if that happens, look, that's incremental buyers, right? There's nothing like relisting locally to get people excited because frankly, the better way to Mexico brand doesn't ring on the floors of the New York Stock Exchange, but it probably does in the halls in uh, Mexico City. So look, you have a lot of these technical type tailwinds. The business is firing on all cylinders. You're getting paid a 9, 10% div and insiders aren't selling down. So yeah, on the other side, it's an EM, emerging market. Funny things happen in EM. Um, you do have to worry about the sustainability of the system growth not necessarily the profitability of the units, but the system probably does stop growing at some point. Although they've they've shot the lights out um, every quarter as a public company. Um, and uh, it's a family owned business where they still own like 40% of the company. I mean, they're in up to their eyeballs yeah. and they have not sold down a share, which has been very interesting. So obviously in the SPAC transaction, they sold a very small piece. So they gave up basically 10% ownership of the business to do the SPAC. Um, but also you have to understand like doing the SPAC 
they brought on board a couple of Mexican rock stars, financial rock stars, um, a guy called Martin Werner, who used to run Goldman Latam banking for 20 years, mm-hmm. which is basically like, you know, in Latam, in Mexico, a country like Mexico, it's who you know, right? More than uh, more egalitarian countries, let's say. So, you know, this guy quit Goldman after 20 years. Um, he's also a very large investor in one of Mexico's largest banks. And the first deal he did was this company. So he would have had his pick of any deal. And the first deal he did as this buying this company, well, bringing this company, backing it. And, you know, they didn't have to list in the US. They could have listed in Mexico if they wanted to. They mm-hmm. chose to list in the US, right? So they had bigger ambitions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they, they're in bed with Mexican financial royalty. Uh, they haven't sold down. Um, yes, they, they could be a little bit better with their transparency and communication. I'm trying to help them learn what it means to be a public company in the US, but you seem to like that role with companies. I mean, I try to help where I can. I, I like to... it. And the, the reason is, this is an important point. No, oh, please. The reason is I found a lot of the value is not actually in the business analysis. Okay. So not to say it's not, not hard. I don't I actually, it's not that difficult to analyze the business. Most of the time, if it's an observable business, you can get your head around it, whether you're a first, second year analyst or a veteran. Analyzing the business is not the hard part. Perceiving what is going to change the market's mind about the business is the hard part. Yeah. Now, whether that be an inflection in the business, which is obviously harder to find than just simply understanding the key drivers, you also have to perceive the changes in those drivers. But again, I'm not even talking about the fundamentals of the business, right? Like this business was doing mid-20s EBITDA margins and has seen a huge operating expansion that I actually picked. I said, look, there's huge operating leverage in this business that people aren't appreciating because gross margins went down. So gross margins went down because the peso went down uh, and therefore overall operating margins looked a bit, looked were flat year on year, even though sales went up a lot for, for a couple of quarters last year, right? Yeah. But the implied operating leverage on the on the on the OPEX piece, right? So below gross profits was actually very high, but everyone missed it because the absolute operating profit didn't actually go up as much as it should have. Now that got fixed in the third quarter and fourth quarter is going to show even more. But that part, honestly, is not even the most difficult part. The most difficult part is figuring out what the market actually cares about. The whole reason the stock went up from 20 to 30 had nothing to do with the operating leverage expansion, nothing. It was all to do with the lack of the warrant overhang. Once that got taken out, the stock took off. In other words, these, these kind of technical factors, this packaging of information is often far more important than the actual fundamentals. Um, and so that's something I increasingly try to focus on with all my investments is how can I get management to understand that it's not the business? That, you know, A lot of managers think, oh, I'll just go focus on the business. If I keep performing, the stock will go up. Maybe, but maybe not and might take years. And so, look, I'm not the one to say you should care about getting your stock price as high as possible now. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is higher stocks create options for everyone, not just investors, but for managers. You want your company to try to maximize its value, not because you want more money, but because it gives you options. There's a reflexivity in that. A higher stock price is a currency. You can use that to grow. Um, You can use that as a defense against being bought out, right? Especially for a family business. Maybe someone would try to buy you if the stock was still 20 bucks. If the stock's 50 bucks, then you can do what you want. You can acquire these other companies to strengthen your platform, to reinforce your dominance in that market. 
So it's highly reflexive. And that's the bit about capital markets that a lot of really strong business managers, I'm not saying they don't get it, but they probably don't appreciate its importance. Like we, we, we talked about Tesla before, right? Mm -hmm. I, I lost a lot of money shorting Tesla. Okay. I covered, I learned my lesson, but I still lost a lot of money. Um, but if we fast forward a year, what's changing the fundamentals? They've shipped more cars and they've lost more money. The fundamentals, well, the, the traditional fundamentals have not really changed. I mean, in grand terms, yes, they have shipped more product and they have painted a, they've painted pretty a lipstick on their pig of a business. Um, but you'd be hard pressed looking at the financial statements and say much has really changed. But what has changed is the very fact that they did not die. The very fact that they did not die when they probably should have died, when they were having a liquidity crisis, when the SEC censured them, um, when they were apparently weeks away from dying and they weren't paying vendors, they were stretching working cap aggressively. The very fact that they got through that flicked investors' perception such that now they are perceived as an inviolate infallible entity not saying that's right but this is the perception they are perceived as the winner and the very fact that they're perceived as the winner is helping them become the winner um, in a similar way this is what i try to kind of help new companies the markets understand in some ways like it's not about just going back and performing it's about how the market like i just read a, i just read an analyst report by morgan stanley talking about the online gaming industry okay they had a section titled category winners. Okay. DraftKings was thrown in there. Okay. Interesting. Keep in mind, keep in mind it's still only legal to, to online sports betting in about eight or nine US states. Right. Maybe, maybe more than that. Don't quote me on that, but whatever. It's some small minority of states. Okay. Mm -hmm. And within those states, DraftKings is only a market leader in a handful, really only like three. Okay. Nevertheless, it has a crazy valuation and all the sell side is pumping it up saying, these guys are going to dominate. They're a category winner. I can guarantee you DraftKings will not generate free cash flow for five years. And I will bet a lot of money they will burn cash for five years and probably a lot longer. It doesn't matter. The markets decided they're a winner, so they have a much better chance of being a winner. I and mean, that's that's a perfect example. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Jeremy, um, a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, we'll have you back on in a few months as, as 2021 unfolds and progresses and how's your newsletter doing by the way i know you just just curious it's going well. you were just starting well. it last time you came on so yeah no 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 knock on wood it's going very well i was i was fortunate to have some early support um and your your uh, your support is obviously um most appreciated and look we had a we had a very good year last year um i think uh on the long so obviously the shorts were pretty pretty disastrous i had my worst year there ever Mm -hmm. um, on the longs though, I think I, I did my year end wrap like a week or two ago. I think I did 25 different ideas and 21 of them were profitable. Uh, so that's a very, very high hit rate. So I was very happy with that. That's, you know, that's probably not going to happen ever again. Um, and the average, the average alpha return was 40 something percent on the longs. So basically what I do is I, I add up the return, the gross return mm -hmm. and then subtract the benchmark return. So, yep. you know, if the benchmark is the S&P or whatever, and the stock's up 50% and the S&P is up 20, so that's a 30% alpha. 30% alpha, yeah. Again, this, is, this, this is from when I publish to when I exit. So obviously there, there might be some slippage or liquidity or whatever. Sure. So this isn't necessarily replicable. That's not what I'm trying to claim. But the point is, even with slippage, even you with did pretty well. losses in there, it was a pretty exceptional year for, for subscribers. So I'm obviously trying to keep that going. But yeah, I'm not 
guiding to anything like that happening again. That was obviously like 2020 was an exceptional year for for everyone, I think. Especially, I think especially for people um, that are a little bit more involved in event-driven situations and more special situations, there was a lot of interesting opportunities this past, last year. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the special sit side though is uh, honestly the fundamental side is going to get harder to make money. Uh, I think the special sit side could stay very active, um, just given the amount of capital. But I mean, I mean, I'm even considering. I mean, so <clears throat> let me clarify. I'm even considering special situations is say in March where all you had to figure out is will this business survive? If it does, it's a multi-bagger. Like right. how many times in your life do you got to play that game? Oh, maybe well, judging by recent markets, maybe once every 10 years, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, who knows? I mean, like to me been- that in, in, in and of itself, that was a special situation. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, the technical, the technical definition of a special. I know what the title is: the banker, bank street, yeah. spinoffs, or merger arbitrage, or what, whatever. But event, event driven, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, you're right. That was a once, once in a generation. It's very unique. Yeah. And, but look, there, there's, you know, it's a great thing about stocks. I mean, you know, one op- one door closes and another door opens. There's always right? something so, new. Yeah. I'm just trying to uh, find that next door. Hey, man, I'm right there with you. On that note, we'll uh, end it, Jeremy. Great to have you on, like always. And uh, good luck with the newsletter. Good luck with your – I know you moved to, to Japan. You're in Tokyo. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Good luck with – yeah. And, we'll uh, yeah, talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.